1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we are turning this morning, 1 Corinthians 4. Paul has been correcting the Corinthian church in a lot of different ways, and we're just getting going. I mean, he is going to spend the whole rest of the book identifying this, and the wrong thinking here, wrong behavior, wrong attitudes. But here he's been addressing and confronting the issue of divisiveness or strife or some kind of enmity in the church, particularly as it pertains to the leaders of the church. And if you don't mind, even the founders of the church, Paul is the one who founded the church in Corinth, and then Apollos came afterwards, and Cephas, where did he come in? We're not exactly sure. We don't have a historical uh, record of, of his interaction specifically with Corinth. Uh, but people said, well, I'm of, a, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ, and all that, that uh, conflict that was going on there. So Paul has addressed that, corrected that idea, that issue of, of uh, a party spirit, a factiousness, um, an undue devotion to, to teachers that just is not helpful, it's not, uh, not appropriate in the church, and it builds or tends toward the, the conflict that, that he does not see, does not want to see in the church. He has clarified even the how, how that the church should view its teachers, its leaders, of folks that are active in administering the word. And just recently he has corrected or, or um, clarified the idea or the identity of the church itself. It's not just a building, it's not just a community of, of people sharing various similar traits or heritage or interests. or It's people in Christ, people whose life is Christ, even the, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in our midst. And so he's identified that. But underlying these different things is the concern that Paul has, and he's going to focus this whole chapter on it, and unfortunately has to return to the same idea in Second Corinthians, that there is not just a pro-Paul group in the church, there's an anti-Paul group, and folks that were uh, undermining or under, underscoring his authority as an apostle and his teaching, even the gospel that he preached, which is why he spent a big portion of, of chapter 1 talking about wisdom versus wisdom of man versus wisdom of God, and he's going to return to this in chapter 15, the gospel that he preaches, and so he's saying, look, you can't disavow me, and you can't disavow what I teach. You need to give proper affirmation of, of both my teaching and my authority in the church. Now, this is Paul speaking, and again, he's going to identify this issue, address it in various ways here in chapter 4, but we're going to look at the first five verses, and as we do, well, I'll mention that in just a moment as we, as we look at these, these verses. Let me read these uh, verses 1 through 4 here. It says, Let a man consider us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It is in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts, and then each one's praise will come to him from God. In these verses, we see a return to the idea of servanthood or the, those who labor in the gospel in the context of a local church or, in Paul's case, many different churches. But uh, Corinth, Cor the church in Corinth, he was there for a year and a half, one of the second longest time he was in any church as far as our records, uh, Acts, basically, it records. And so... Our records records. Isn't that interesting how, anyway, nouns and verbs can be, anyway. He also talks about coming judgment and the necessity of the evaluation, talking about builders and fire coming and, and dis, uh, distinguishing between gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay, stubble. There's an examination that happens. So servanthood, yes. Examination, yes. Coming judgment, yes. And so it really does matter how we conduct ourselves in this life and how we minister. Now, he says us, and in the context of this, it's, it's particularly Paul himself, but also Paul and, and Apollos and other ap apostles, whether capital A or lowercase a, apostles, those sent and those who have a specific role in that first century church. But I think by extension, we can talk about any Christian leader that is working, of course, serving in the church, but, but even beyond that, any Christian because by the time we get to verse 5, it applies to every single one of us. Each one will receive praise from God. Now, what measure of praise, praise is that? But the point is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
kind of come from different perspectives, uh, Paul's perspective, apostolic people's perspective, church leaders' perspective, just your everyday Christian perspective. So you'll see that kind of, um, not a melee, but a menagerie or a combination of different applications of these verses. And Paul, as he is, is uh, helping us through that, understanding his role and our own role in the church. When he is talking about these things and he says, I don't examine myself, he does not exclude in the um, in this these verses. Again, we look at them very carefully. He does not exclude that we can teach one another. He's not saying, well, don't don't uh, you know, don't exercise any judgment until the Lord comes. Don't pass any judgment. No, we can still teach. We have to teach. That's our responsibility. And again, not just the teachers who stand up behind the desk, the pulpit. In the pews, in the in the chairs, rows of chairs. Anyway, we teach one another, and we also reprove one another. Just because he says, "Don't judge," and I'm not, I don't examine examine myself. We can still reprove, and that is to warn or or to bring a conviction of sin and wrongdoing, rebuking one another, even, and that has a little bit more stronger, not opposition. We never want to oppose one another, but we do want to provoke one another toward love and good deeds. So he's he's saying it. I'm not saying we can't do these things in the church. I'm saying we need also to have discipline in the church. We've talked about this on various occasions before. Teaching one another, Paul is not excluding these from these actions in the church from what he's saying here in these verses. Correcting one another, even as we may have need to say, you're, you're not quite doing it this, right this way, or your attitude is not this way. And judging doctrine, it's a big thing. Judging doctrine and even judging disputes. We'll see this again in chapter 6, the disputes that arise arose in the church and how the church itself ought to address those things. So as we look at these verses, don't examine, don't judge. Well, we can still be useful to one another, uh, not in a, in a condemning kind of a way, not in a uh, you know, once and done kind of thing. I, I reprove you and you didn't didn't confess and so you're done. Uh, I'm done with you. But in a, in a hopeful way, trusting God is at work in each other's lives and we are listening to the shepherd and we do want to grow uh, uh, in, the, in the way that we please him. So verse 1 here, chapter 4 and verse 1 says, let a man, let any person, uh, kind of a generic idea, let a man consider us or think of us, regard us, uh, have an opinion uh, concerning us uh, in this manner. Again, he's talking about the role of Christian leaders in the church and the relationship of the church to its its leaders and its caretakers and, of course, to Christ and to God himself. Remember the last verse of the previous, last two verses said that everything belongs to the church. Well, here he wants to not qualify that or, or change that thing, but he says, okay, just because the leaders belong to the church that doesn't mean that the church gets to call the shots, as it were. In other words, the loyalty that the, here he says, servants and stewards have is, is yes, yes to the church, but to the Lord, ultimately. And it's almost like uh, describing a wife's uh, submission to her husband. It's as to the Lord. Submit to, the, to your husbands as to the Lord. You're submitting to the Lord Christ. And even servants, uh, slaves, it's talked about in Colossians 3 and, and Ephesians Six uh, it talks about slaves obey your masters on earth, but you're really serving the Lord. It's the Lord Christ whom you're serving, and so the ultimate loyalty and ultimate, if you don't mind, answerability is to the Lord. And he's going to emphasize that this whole, these whole, this whole paragraph here. So think of us in this manner again: Paul, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, all the apostles, church leaders, but even ourselves as well. We're all servants of Christ. In fact, he has two identifying marks here: servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay, so this is how we are to regard one another. He undercuts the whole kind of ambitious attitude of the Corinthian church, really much into the Roman world, so much uh, about uh, glory and honor and prestige and uh, the recognition of men. And I suppose we'd like to think, oh, that's, I'm glad we're done with that. You know, 2,000 years ago, they, they went crazy with that stuff, and we don't have that issue now. No, we still have that issue. And so Paul is using various words from chapter 1, but mostly in chapters 3 and 4 here. He's using terms like servant. He's using terms like planter, the one who plants and the one who waters. Uh, there's a guy who, who uh, you know, just identifies himself as a water carrier, just the one who, who brings the water, just what he's doing. And uh, a fellow worker, one who is uh, working alongside of people, not a, a lone uh, wolf or a loose cannon or whatever, but somebody who has partners in the gospel. One who helps, 
which you think, well, I don't want to be the helper. I want to be the one who's being helped, right? I, want to, I don't want to be the help. I want to have that kind of... No, that's our attitude is to be a servant, one who humbly goes out and, and gets into the dirt and brings the water and it's heavy and, and uh, has uh, people you work alongside, helpers. And here again, stewards. We'll see that idea here. All these terms are just so contrary to what that world or not that world, but the world, wants to celebrate. That is honor and prestige and ambition and vainglory. We don't think it's vainglory, but it really is when we try after the praise of men. And that's not how we ought to be. Our Lord Jesus said, don't lord it over those. uh, Mark 10, verse 42 to 45, talks about the lords of the Gentiles. Oh, they're they're just all about themselves. And they want to have the honor and all this stuff. Not so, not so among you. If you want to be great, you must become the servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's really a contrary attitude toward our own role in this world, in the church definitely, but in the world. And it is another indication of the total reversal between the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of God, and the wisdom of God in the foolishness of the world, or in the, in the light of, in the perspective of the world, it's foolishness, God's method of doing things, God's means of saving people. Why did Jesus have to die? Because that's what was required in the wages of sin. So these terms, servant, servants, and stewards, really underscore the fact we are menial servants. We are subservient, we're underneath, we are subordinate to, we're just helpers. In fact, this idea of servant is different from uh, the, the previous term we saw in chapter 3 that had more of just any kind of service. Here, it's a, it's a service that has, has to do with being under somebody. It's a, a subservient service, which is kind of redundant, but uh, one who's subordinate to somebody else. And it really emphasizes the relationship between the, the worker, the labor, the servant, and not a master so much, but one to whom the honor, the authority, the the service is rendered on behalf of that person. And so, uh, by the way, there's another term, and we get this term a lot, I guess, in our English term, English language, and that is the word minister. Minister comes from a Latin word, the Latin translation, actually, of this verse has to do, uh, mentions ministers of Christ. And so we think, oh, minister, that's an ordained person or whatever. No, it's not just a servant, just a servant. Nothing more, nothing less, just a servant of Christ. And so we don't need to attach any kind of uh, glory or ambition or honor or prestige unduly to that. There's another thing regarding this this term, and maybe you've heard it. It's not used this way in the New Testament. That's why I kind of left it for last. But it does describe those who are on the bottom of a three-decked ship. It's called a trireme, which means in Latin a a three-decked rowing boat or ship, used in just all kind of warfare and whatnot. But on three different decks are rowers, and depending on the length of the ship, determine how many rowers. But on that bottom of that ship, and they weren't slaves so much, not always. Some, I imagine, if you read or watched um, Ben-Hur, you realize, oh, he was sentenced to the, to the galley and became a galley slave. But this idea of being on the undermost part of a ship and just pulling your heart, your, all your job is to pull that oar. And row, row, row your boat. And so it's used to describe those kind of things. Not a very glorious position. You're down at the bottom. Uh, first one in, last one out kind of thing. And just not a, not a pleasant situation. But that's how we ought to consider ourselves. Servants and, and sub, subordinate to uh, one another, yes. But here, specifically, subservient, subordinate to the Lord Christ himself. Servants of Christ. And so the attachment is to the person of our Lord. It is wanting to see his um, ambitions or his agenda accomplished through us and to see the fruit that he gives. There are various times where the scripture authors, uh, like Luke or the apostles, are described as servants. Uh, For example, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 2, it talks about eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Same idea, same word as we see here. It's describing also the one who was just the helper, worker in the synagogue, who brought out the the Torah scroll and laid it down for Jesus to read from. And Luke chapter 4 talks about John, John Mark, who was brought as a helper along with Paul, uh, Saul, and uh, Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And Paul himself was sent as a servant and witness, not only to the things you've seen, but also the things in which I will appear uh, to you. So Paul is, is sent as a servant. And again, the attachment is to Christ himself. Even though the servants belong to the church, right, in chapter 3, 22 to 23, the 
subordination is to Christ. The devotion is to Christ. And because our devotion is to Christ, that we serve one another. We ought not to lord it over one another. We ought not be a master. I'm going to serve you, but then there's a certain measure of thing. Well, uh, you ought to serve me back. It's kind of like the whole upset of John chapter 3 when Jesus, uh, 13 rather, Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he said, if I've done this thing to you, you'd expect him to say, you ought to do it to me once in a while. And he says, don't. You, if I've done it to you, you should also do it to another. There's that kind of mutual exchange and service. In other words, even though this isn't a slave and master relationship, the devotion is to Christ. The, the subordination is to him. There is an example in the Old Testament, and it's so interesting how the law is presented uh, in Exodus. Exodus 20, of course, is the Ten Commandments, but Exodus 21, the very next chapter, you think, you know, he would, God would likely talk about other things. He talked about slavery. He talked about uh, the limits on slavery, but he also gave an example, the second example, really, in that text, Exodus 21, has to do with a slave, a servant, but one who is uh, a... a uh, property, if you don't mind, of a master. And if that slave, and this is Exodus 20, verse 5, if that slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I'll not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. Then his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. And you think, why would he do that? Well, there are some other stipulations I didn't read in the opening chapter, opening verses of this chapter 21. But the idea is he loved his master. The devotion was, I, I love my wife and children, but I love my master. I want to serve him permanently. I'm attached myself to him. That's the idea here. Servants of Christ and wanting to honor him. Jesus gave another example of this in relation to money or wealth or mammon, the stuff of this world. But he said, no one can serve two masters. So if, in the context of a local church, look, if you are serving Christ, but you're also serving the church in an ultimate kind of subordinate fashion, well, and, and ultimately, and hopefully, they should not contradict, right, the church versus Christ, but the devotion is to Christ. Honor him and recognize uh, the church may come and go, and you may have different churches in the course of your life, but your devotion is to Christ. And because you love Christ, you love his people. And because you love Christ, you want to live in a, in a way that pleases God and wants to, to honor him and give him the glory and the, the prestige and the, the praise that goes to Christ alone. And so being servants of Christ is a key idea, a subservient, subordinate role, serving the Lord Jesus. He has this other term here, stewards. Stewards of the mysteries of God. And he says that the, this word is often used in Scripture to describe those who are uh, managing somebody else's property. Uh, an administrator, uh, even an estate manager, um, a trustee kind of gets to that idea, but not really. Uh, there's a, another word, major domo. You've heard this. It's Latin. Again, comes from Latin, the chief of the house, but it, it's not their house, managing somebody else's house. Think of Joseph running the, the not my Joseph, but the Joseph, son of, of Jacob, who managed the household of Potiphar and everything, just managed the whole thing as if he were Potiphar himself withholding, of course, his wife, and that whole, obviously, that set things awry. But even in Pharaoh's house, he was the steward of the whole land of Egypt. Why? Because God was with him. But that idea of managing somebody else's property, that there is an accountability, a responsibility before the Lord to exercise that stewardship. And he said, Paul many times uses that term, uh, describing a stewardship that's been entrusted to me. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 17, our Lord Jesus talks about the, the faithful and prudent steward whom his master will put in charge of servants, uh, give them their rations at the proper time. That's Luke 12, verse 42. So these two ideas, stewards and servants, or servants and stewards, both imply a delegated kind of authority from from. Christ, we are we're subordinate to him, we are serving him, we're managing his property, but also an accountability back to him. We're not just doing our own thing. There is, there is uh, the accounting, uh, even in Luke 16 says, give an accounting of your stewardship for you can no longer be a steward. And so faithfulness is very important as we'll see here in, in verse two. These two words, again, are so present a radically different perception of leadership and service in the church, contrary to what the world celebrates, uh, the, these uh, status. It's not about status. It's about service and thinking less of yourself so you can think of other people as more important. Servants of Christ, stewards, and notice what he says, stewards of the mysteries of God. These Corinthian people, um, well, a mystery. First of all, isn't Sherlock Holmes? It's not something hard to figure out. We need, just need more clues. We need to think about it, figure out these things. A mystery is something you just can't know unless you know it. In other words, you can't know it unless it's revealed to you. Uh, 
It is something that has been previously hidden, and now by means, especially in this context, by means of the Spirit, these mysteries are now, they're ours. They're not secret anymore. They're not hidden. And it's, it's like uh, you can't unsee these things. You've heard it in other contexts, I'm, I'm sure. The problem comes when, well, you can't unsee it, but you can certainly neglect it. God's wisdom, God's mysteries teach us we need a Savior. We need the Lord Jesus Christ, and he had to come not just to be the king, but to be the suffering servant of Yahweh, to die in our place. And that mystery now revealed, we say, well, that makes me look bad. That makes me look like a sinner, and I don't like that story. So I'm going to go, I'll put that aside, and I'm going to go back to that whole thing about I'm a good person after all, and I'm better than that person, better, and God deserves or excuse me, God uh, owes me life. He owes me something because I'm a good... No, that's not how we ought to do. So a mystery cannot be uh, covered back up. It's there. It's out in the open. But it can be ignored and neglected and, and forsaken. Paul says, no, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. And not to neglect these things, but to celebrate them. And to say, God is the one who's revealing these things. Again, Old Testament example, Daniel, uh, when he came to the house or to the throne of, of Nebuchadnezzar, to interpret a dream, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 2 and verse 47, says, Truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Since you've been able to reveal this mystery, able to explain it, able to uncover what, what does this mean, this dream that he had. And Daniel did because God is a revealer, excuse me, of mysteries. And we'll see this again, or we actually did already see it in chapter 2, verse 7, about a mystery that has been used to be hidden, now it's revealed. Well, so all these things underscore the idea we're just servants, we're stewards. You ought to think of us in this regard, but we're servants of God. And we manage his, not just um, the, the property, we manage his ideas, his revelation. In fact, we're, we're not peddlers. He describes that later. We're not peddling the truth. We are presenting, proclaiming, uh, declaring the truth and putting that out there. And you have a responsibility, not to me so much, I'm just, I'm just serving the Lord, but you have a responsibility to the truth, and you have a responsibility then to live that out in your lives and to have proper regard, not over-regard, not under-regard for God's leaders, God's servants in the church. What is the measurement then? How do you measure these, the, uh, the suitability of these stewards, these servants? He says in verse 2, in this case, or uh, as it goes, or given this uh, reality about the apostles or the church leaders, how uh, you measure the effectiveness or the the, the um, suitability of these, well, the faithfulness of the stewards here. And it says it's required. It's not an optional thing. You know, I, I'm a steward, but I, I've, I've canceled, I've, you know, I've crossed out on the contract my um, having to be approved or, or examined by my master. I'm going to do whatever I want, and he can't fire me. He can't do anything because I'm, no, that's not part of the contract. That's not part of the agreement. It is required, it is something that is demanded. It is something that is even, uh, it's by definition. It's not an optional thing, just like marriage is between a man, one adult man, one adult woman. That is marriage. You can't qualify it, can't quantify it, you can't, anything like that. It's part of the definition. It's inherent in there. And the same way, stewards, that means you must be found faithful. You must be found faithful. And you, you, it underscores the reality. There's going to be review in this, this whole work. A steward is one who has to be found reliable, uh, dependable. You've been given a task. How'd you do? How'd you do with this task? How did you uh, effectively carry this, these things out? Now, unfortunately, we have a lot of different ways that we can measure or try to measure faithfulness, but faithfulness is not measured by brilliance. And again, think of in, in terms of Paul or, or the apostles or just church leaders or even yourself, we don't judge each other based on our brilliance or our worldly wisdom. How foolish would that be? We're, we're supposed to be speaking God's wisdom. So measuring, well, you didn't, you don't agree with so-and-so philosopher. Yeah, right, because that so-and-so philosopher is a fool. He doesn't know what God is. So not measuring ourselves by worldly wisdom, not measuring ourselves by ability, because different people have different ability. Uh, different skills. Even like Paul says, I'm a planter. Apollos is a water. Those are different skills, ability, uh, and you can't judge faithfulness. You can be a faithful water. You can be a faithful planter. You, we don't judge one another or, or examine or test one another based on eloquence. It's a big thing. Remember in the context of the Corinthian church, Paul, you don't talk as nice as Paulus. Apollos, he's trained in Alexandria. He's really got a good speech. And you... God help you, but that just is a mess when you try to open your mouth. So eloquence is not a good indicator of, 
of faithfulness or personality. Uh, you have different personalities. In fact, one definition of preaching is just the word, presenting the word through a personality. You think of different preachers that you've heard over the years, and that one has this personality, and that one has this, and this approach. We can't measure faithfulness based on that. Giftedness, personality, and giftedness are both gifts or granted by God. We can't measure uh, on the giftedness of the people. Now, they ought to be apt to teach, right? First Timothy 3 talks about that, but, but in terms of Boy, he, he's better at that than the other person. That, that's not an adequate measure of, of faithfulness. I've got a lot of degrees. Does that help? Not necessarily. Not necessarily at all. Well, oh, but he's a really clever preacher. Really got, oh, he's so witty too. He's just all those jokes and those one-liners. Now it's just so great. But we also cannot judge by fruit. And, you know, there's various churches that measure things based on three Bs. And that is bodies, bucks, and buildings. And we want fruit. You know, how many people are you running in church? And, and somebody answered that question. Oh, we don't like running in church. We don't, we don't let our kids do that. Well, the point is, how many people do you have in your church? And how many buildings do you have? And what's your annual budget like? And we, you can't judge faithfulness on that regard. Because a lot of things that are, I don't know, cancerous grow very rapidly, but they're not healthy. And so, and it's not to say, well, we're small, so we're, we're faithful to God. That's not either, either, either the case. You can't judge faithfulness based on these things. We want to judge faithfulness in two ways. We'll see this return later in the, in the time. Faithfulness is to God, to the Lord, and to the Lord's message. We'll see these ideas return here in just a moment. But when he says here that it is, uh, oops, that's verse Go back to verse 2 there. It's, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. So faithfulness has to do with this proper evaluation. Again, Old Testament example, Moses was found faithful in all his house. Numbers chapter 12. The Lord talks about the, my servant, my, uh, my servant, my slave even. Sometimes that word is translated. He is faithful in all my household. And he goes on to describe the the high regard that the Lord has for his man, Moses. Moses was found faithful. The Lord Jesus talks about a faithful uh, and prudent slave whom his master put in charge of his household. I mentioned that verse before, Matthew 24 and verse 45. And so faithfulness is a key uh, marker of these things. Faithful to the Lord. It is a devotion to him. Again, that idea of, of the servant, the, the one who's uh, subordinate to Christ. It is a faithfulness to Christ himself. Not the idea of Christ, not the concept of, of some Christ figure, but Christ Jesus himself. You love him. You want to please him. You want to have a righteous living. In fact, if we have faithfulness in our lives to the Lord, that does engender or, or lead us to obedience. It leads us to holiness. It leads us to the above reproach aspect. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, the overseer must be on reproach as God's steward. And so that doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean somebody who's striving after holiness and godliness in their lives. So devotion to Christ is a sanctifying effect in our, in our lives. Also, as I mentioned, faithful to the message. If the steward has been entrusted with the management of property or the affairs of the master, then you'd kind of think, well, what does the master want to do with these things? In terms of investments, does the master want to invest in this option over here or this option over here? Does he not want to invest at all? He just wants to keep the money because he has something he wants to buy with it. You have to know what the, the master's instructions are. And so faithfulness to the message or the instructions of God himself. And really, in the church context, comes down to sound doctrine. What does God say? What does God want in our lives? So much attention is given toward sound doctrine and to have the assurance that what we speak as God's servants, as God's stewards, is his own word uh, himself. You think, well, it's not very fun to be evaluated in this regard. Well, Luke mentions this reality in, Luke, in Acts 17, that as Paul is ministering in different places, Thessalonica he was in, came to Berea, you know this verse, these in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word, what Paul was preaching, and Silas, and they received that word with great eagerness. Yes, we want to hear what you're saying, but they took that word and brought it back to the scriptures, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So a steward must be found faithful to the message or the instruction uh, of which uh, the master or the, the uh, landlord or the property owner uh, has in mind. He says, going on forward, okay, we've established this, that this, we're servants, we're stewards, we have to be found faithful but then, okay, so who, who's the one to determine faithfulness? Who's the one that measures these things? Verse 3 says, 
It's a very small thing, just a very little, little something small, that I may be examined by you or by any human court. I think, well, Paul, are you just being proud and arrogant? Are you having that kind of an attitude or idea? Maybe you've seen this in different churches uh, where, where the pastor is, it's, uh, you're quoting the verse out of context, but, and it's from David and talking about Saul, but you quote this verse about yourself and, and it basically says, touch not the Lord's anointed. I am the anointed prophet. I'm the mouthpiece of God. Don't bring any accusation against me. Well, that's not the right attitude, right? A servant, a steward. Uh, we should not be condescending, uh, whether you're behind the pulpit or just your, your normal, not that I'm not normal, but any, uh, just we shouldn't ever become arrogant about things and say, you know, pompous, all full of yourself and, and just all kind of just in yourself, in your own business. There's, there's this example back in Acts chapter 5, uh, Thutis, Theodos, who rose up, they said, and he was claiming to be somebody. He was nobody, nothing. But he claimed big things about himself, and he was all uh, pompous and these things. Paul's not saying this. I don't care. It's a small thing. You examine me, whatever. I don't. It's not a big thing. But he's not doing that out of pride or or hesitation to be evaluated. We read it earlier in Galatians two. He went to Jerusalem, submitted the gospel that he preached, evaluated it. The the apostles did, and they said, "Yeah, you you got the right message." And he went out and preached, and he doesn't mind being examined, but in this regard, examined is this big idea. In fact, twice in this verse, be examined by you or even by myself. Doesn't It's not, as, it's not a binding kind of a, a process. It's not something that, oh, well, you've made the decision. I guess I'm, I'm disqualified or something. It is this idea that, and he gets to it in the next verse, I have a clear conscience before God. And he says, I'm doing my work. My stewardship will be reported back to God himself. And that's not playing the high card of saying, well, God told me to do this and, and I'm going to do it. Well, you better be able to show from Scripture. In fact, somebody said, if you want to hear God's audible voice, then read the Bible out loud. Okay, just read it right there. But when people say, well, God told me this, how do you, how do you, how do you judge that? How do you test that? Is it in Scripture? Do you see a confirmation of that? In Scripture, you've got to come back to the Word, got to come back to the book. And so he says, look, when you examine me, and he, he uses uh, the individuals in the, in the church, but he really emphasizes the human aspect of it. In fact, maybe your translation at the end of that phrase says, or day, the word court is actually day. It's kind of like what we get the idea of your, get your day in court. Uh, you'll have your opportunity for the, the justice or whatever. He's saying, I don't, it's not a big thing. This evaluation, this examination, this testing. And in the, these verses, we see the, the same basic idea, this examination, this um, uh, process of review, but even, the, and it kind of gets muddied a little bit, at least in my mind, how to differentiate between this examination here versus what is described as in verse 5, passing judgment before the time. Uh, same root in those these different words, examine or passing judgment. But it seems like it's just a constant state of criticism, looking for any kind of number of things that Paul's doing wrong in the Corinthian church, and now being absent. And now he always oh, he has these big pompous letters over here, but he's so weak and so frail when he's among us. And we don't understand how, this, how Paul can be the same person. So he's saying, you don't know everything. Your your measure uh, ways of measuring what is uh, based on things that are transitory and you don't know all the truth. You, you can't even know what's in my heart. He says, in fact, I don't even examine myself. And not, it's not to say that he doesn't care. He just lets it all hang out and he's just undisciplined. No, he's very disciplined. Remember chapter 9. He's going to talk about the fact that I buffet my body daily. I make it my slave so I would not be disqualified. So he's very intelligent, intent rather, on not so much examining for the purpose of passing judgment, but qualifying, carefully disciplining himself for God's glory because he's living, not in light of a human court, because we can make mistakes in our judgment. We can make false accusations or false um, conclusions about things, false verdicts. But before God, God judges righteously. Verse 5, we'll see that here in just a moment. God judges. He knows exactly what's going on. And we can, we can have uh, problems as we go along uh, trying to, to make judgments based on what we know or what we don't know uh, here. And so I want to give one other word about this. I don't even examine myself. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, test yourself to see if you're in the faith? 
In fact, he does. First, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize about yourselves that Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? But I hope you'll realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Those are two different words used there. It's not the same word here of, of judging or criticizing or whatever it is. It's the idea here in 2 Corinthians 13 of evaluating the quality of or um, trying to get, is the, for example, in gold. Is this real gold or is this fool's gold? So there's a testing process. Not a testing that you want to destroy it, but a testing of to determine, is this what it says it is or not? And so he says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. What kind of fruit do you see in your life? Examine yourselves. Bring yourself to the crucible, if you don't mind, and put yourself right through the ringer. Run through the gospel. Do I believe that gospel? Do I see fruit of the gospel? What kind of fruit should I look for? Well, the fruit of the Spirit. How do you interact when people criticize you? How do you uh, view yourself when people treat you like the servant that you are? I mean, really get into the bare bones of this thing. Test yourself in these ways. And he and the contrast of that is we do not, our, we ourselves do not fail the test. To be the contrast between being approved and unapproved is what's going on here. We have been approved by God based on his test, and we're not unapproved. We are uh, grade A, top drawer, uh, blue ribbon kind of quality because of God's work in our lives. And so we, we see this. We, it's not just that Paul is, I don't examine myself. I don't, you know, whatever I want to do, I do it. It's not that. We're, we're bound to God himself, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and to his instructions. When it gets down to something like this, and you've heard this throughout history, hopefully you haven't said it, but if you have said it, you better understand what you're saying. When people claim, well, I'm just following my commanding officer's orders. Well, is it a just order? Is it a legal order, what you've been asked, asked to do? Uh, your master's orders, your commanding officer. Well, here in the context of the church, I'm just following my master's orders, no problem. The master's good, and he's true. There's no shadow of turning with him. So if you're just doing the master's orders and your master is the Lord, excellent. But if you start using a different master, and that is to say, well, I'm my own master and I do whatever I want. And, and I get, especially in the church leadership kind of thing, when the shepherds start devouring the, the flock for their own personal ends, Ezekiel really got after that, or God through Ezekiel got after that. You are just manhandling and abusing the flock. That's not appropriate at all. And so just following master's orders, well, it's a master's Christ, do it. Paul says, I'm not a loose cannon. I do things according to what God wants to do. Verse 4 says, I'm conscious. I don't have anything against myself. I've evaluated myself to a certain degree, and I, I, my conscience is clear. In fact, this, this uh, phrase, I'm conscious of nothing, has it's the same root of the idea, the word conscience. Conscience, which is our moral adjudicator or decider. It's kind of the, the decider. Is this a good thing or bad thing? Well, it, so it, it's just something, it's an internal mechanism that God has entrusted to us to think uh, through various things, uh, evaluate op options, opportunities. And he says, look, I've evaluated myself. I have no hidden agenda uh, in my ministry. I'm not, you know, trying to make myself rich. In fact, he says in Acts 20, these hands minister to my needs more than once, and not just to my, me my needs but to those about me. I served, and I, I worked with my hands to serve other people. I'm conscious of nothing against myself. My conscience is clear before him. The problem with conscience, though, because different people have different things that they're, they're troubled by, uh, whether it be, well, certain days, right? Romans 14 talks about that, or food, sacrifice to idols. We'll see that in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. They have different conscientious uh, concerns. Well, the conscience is just an indicator of what you think at the time, of whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. But the conscience really needs to be trained by God's word. You can't just, well, I'm, I'm offended by this. Well, wait a minute, why? What's the thing? We know there's nothing, nothing like Idas, but if you think it's a problem, well, you, you, you don't, don't cause your brother to be offended in this way. This way. But he also says there's nothing to it. You, you, we, we should not condemn one another. We should not pass judgment on one another. But we should subject our consciences to the Lord himself. Because you can have a seared conscience where you, you're doing something that you know is wrong, but you don't feel it because you're, you're just insensitive to the fact that your conscience is screaming at you. And you've told it, shut up enough that it, it's gone to the background. And you do whatever you want, but you're still sinning and doing things that are wrong. Paul says, I'm conscious of nothing. Nothing against myself. But he says, 
look, in the same way that I would not submit and regard anything like a human evaluation of me or a human court evaluation, I'm a human too. And I'm, hopefully, the best one to know who I am, because I, you know, the thoughts of, of a man, he's mentioned that earlier in this, this context, he says, I'm a man too, therefore I'm not by my own self acquitted or vindicated or justified. Just because I can't think of anything wrong with me doesn't mean I am clear, right? Uh, doing I mean, a faithful steward. No, I'm not by this means acquitted. He's not talking about justified, uh, righteous. He's talking in relation to the fulfillment of his ministry, his, sur- his service or stewardship before God, his ministry of the word. He says, I'm not acquitted by you or by the human court or even by my own opinion. Who is the one who examines me? Ah, now we get down to the nitty-gritty here in verse 4. The one who examines me is the Lord. The one who evaluates me, the one for whom I have the chiefest and most um, earnest desire to please and to honor and to see um, uh, filled out in my life, it's the Lord. Now, typically when Paul uses this term Lord, here it's not qualified, it's not the Lord Jesus, but we can understand he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He mentions that earlier we're, we're servants of Christ. The Lord is just another another uh, a title attributed to our Lord Jesus. Uh, not to Jesus, he is Lord. And so he says, the one who examines me is the Lord. And he's not, again, saying I'm above criticism or above uh, rebuke or anything like that. My good grief, didn't we just read or have read to us Galatians 2, 11 through 21, when Paul went to another upstanding guy in the church and just rebuked him to his face even. And we just read it, so I'm not going to read it again. But Galatians, Paul went right to Peter and said, you're wrong. And so he's, he's not saying, I'm above criticism. He's just saying, my ultimate loyalty, my ultimate um, vindicator is the Lord himself. He's the one that I'm serving. I serve the church, and we serve the church, wanting to see God established in it but our our loyalty goes to him himself. And he really emphasizes the fact this examination doesn't always happen in this time space continuum. Here we go with some references there. But it has to do with the eschatological, that last day's judgment when Christ himself comes. That's the only judgment that really matters. And again, it's not to say that we can't help one another and provoke one another on toward love and good deeds, but ultimately we are living in light of that day, not a human court day, the day when Christ himself comes and he will bring, whoa, justice and obvious revealing of what was going on in our lives. And so we want, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, we have as our ambition. This is what we're after. Whether at home in the body or absent from the body, so either whether we're alive or dead, to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. The Lord himself is that great evaluator, and we will give an account to his own master he stands or falls, falls, Romans 14 and verse 4 says. Jesus also said that I mean, the, the fault that people were finding with him, Matthew 11, you, you're associating with sinners, or you, you know, we, we sang the dirge for you and you didn't uh, mourn, and we, we sang the, or played the flute and you didn't dance. Well, I can't make you happy. You're, you're judging based on human things, and, and you... Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, or by the fruit, uh, Matthew 11, verse 19. So Paul says, I have nothing to hide. The one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, he says, verse, the application here in verse 5, I have nothing to hide. Christ himself will reveal everything in his time because no individual person is qualified to test adequately faithfulness, which is the measure, right? It's required of a steward to be found faithful. We, we, we don't have all the information. We don't have the objectivity. A lot of our, our judging is, is relative or based on history or whatever it is. Um, we want to please the Lord, each one individually, and that is the great unifier. That's the great common denominator. Not trying to please each other because we can't even do that, but to please the Lord. If we can be pleasing to him, Wow, that brings that unity that is so contrary to what we see in that, in that Corinthian church. Well, quickly wrapping up these, this last verse. He says, do not go on passing judgment. In other words, you could say, stop judging one another. In an evaluative, final kind of sense, stop finding fault with each other. Just get along. I mean, unless it's a sin issue, which in which case the reproving and rebuking and correcting and those things come into play. But look, if, if this is not related to, to a violation of a verse, then just settle down. Do not go on passing judgment. And here's the idea, and it kind of brings in an athletic imagery 
Uh, remember this Ithsmian Games, it's not, not like the Olympian Games, but similar, just more uh, local and fewer events or whatever. But in the Ithsmian Games, the Isthmus of Corinth or of Achaia, um, a game goes on, and the idea here is stop pronouncing the winner before the game has even started. Or the game is in play, and you're, you've already, okay, stop the play, here's the winner. Wait a minute, we're not even done yet. We haven't barely started, we're still dressed. I mean, because Greek athletes kind of got uh, <clears throat> au naturel in their performance. So we're, we haven't even done this thing. So what are you doing pronouncing judgment? Stop that. Stop judging before the time. And he says specifically, this time is when Christ comes. Christ comes. And then our judgment of one another is irrelevant. What matters is what does Christ say? When he comes, wait and comes. And the idea here is it's a certain event when the Lord comes, but it is uncertain in terms of its time. So as Jesus said elsewhere, you don't know when the day of the Lord may come. This is the day of the Lord. This is when Christ comes in judgment. You don't know when it is going to happen. So be ready at any moment. You know, surprise inspection. Here's Christ. And it's not a surprise inspection like, oh, we'll get after. No, it's the final one. This determines, are you in, are you out? And thankfully, in this context, I don't think he's talking about unbelievers here. I think he's talking about the Lord, the Lord's church. When the Lord comes, he will bring. And these two ideas, some parallelistic thoughts here. He'll both bring to light things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts. So he's the one. Christ himself will turn the light on. You ever seen that? Uh, I don't know, after a, uh, if you've ever been to a youth shut-in, not a shut-in, a uh, Lock-in, that's what it's called, not shut-in. Lock-in, and, and the lights are kind of low, and, and then when the lights turn on, you're like, oh, what a mess around here, and let's just clean up this joint. When Christ comes, everything's going to be turned on, everything will be revealed, the things hidden in darkness, but not just the deeds or the actions or the effects of, that, were, that took place in darkness, but even the motives, the intentions of the heart, God will reveal. And you think, how does he do that? It's his specialty. He says, I, the Lord, test the hearts. I don't judge on appearances. You guys are, are famous for doing that. I judge based on righteous judgment. And so when Christ comes, he will turn the lights on. He will bring the full revelation, not just of what has been done, but why it's been done, the intentions, the purposes, the plannings of the heart. He will bring these things to light. He's going to turn the light on opposite the darkness, and he's going to reveal or manifest the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, uh, Hebrews 4.12. And so we can entrust judgment to him. He will judge righteously. I think it's not to say that we can't rebuke and, and admonish one another. But ultimately, we look to Christ. We look to him for the, for the vindication of our faithfulness before him. One last thing about this verse. Usually darkness has a moral element to it. Um, so it's the hidden deeds of evil, darkness kind of thing. I don't know if that really is the context here, partly because the last part of this verse, verse 5, says, then each one's praise will come to him from God. If Jesus were there in this context, now he's going to judge the living and the dead for evil and for good, so there's, it's not, I'm not questioning that. In this context, though, I think he's talking about redeemed people. And he's talking about the things which we do, which we think are hidden, uh, Deeds done in secret, and even Jesus makes a big point of it contrastingly in Matthew chapter 6 about deeds done in, in full view, fasting and praying in the streets and all this. Uh, and you want your praise, you get it. You've got the praise of men. Congratulations. You want the praise of God? Go and do something in secret. Go in your closet and pray. Uh, anoint your head. Look, look like you're not fasting when you're fasting because you want the praise of men, you'll get it. But to get the praise of God, that is that takes something different. In other words, this word praise is always a commendation. It's not an ironic or, or reversed idea. Oh, you'll get your praise all right. You're going to be ruined or busted. It's that never do we see this phrase, this word used, praise rather, used as a negative thing, as a, as a condemnation. In other words, the point being, it's Christians. He's talking about here, I think. Those, God will reveal everything, and each one's praise, rightly so, his commendation, his, his reward, his... Um, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, that kind of idea. But notice from whom it comes. Ultimately, we want the praise from God. We want his commendation. We want his endorsement. We want his stamp of approval. It really matters whether we're living for the praise of men, trying to make everybody happy, 
trying to obey the Lord here, trying to please him, trying to do what he says. He's entrusted to me uh, different work. And so I'm trying to have my thoughts, my intentions, my motivations all under the right subordinate to Christ himself. And I don't, you know, it's hard to understand how the, the effects of this. I can't, I don't have any control over the fruit. Uh, the Lord is the one who gives the increase, but I want to be faithful to the job that he's entrusted to me. God is the one who rewards according to his perspective. We don't want to be noticed. In fact, again, Matthew chapter 6, glorified by men, seen by men, noticed by men. Hey, you want those three things? You can have it. But if you want to be noticed by God, Matthew 6 and verse 4, your father who sees what is done in secret, he'll reward you. He'll reward you. Be faithful. Be faithful to what the Lord has, has done. Don't be the wicked, lazy slave talked about in Matthew 25 uh, verse 26, or the worthless save, talked about in Luke 19, verse 22. So we want to be faithful to the Lord. We want to see his word um, honored in our own lives, our personal holiness, also to be useful as we share the gospel with other people. We ought not to say, well, that didn't work, so you, you're a failure. Well, no, temporal results do not indicate ultimate success before the Lord. And again, Paul's not been proud or arrogant or above reproof not above reproach, but above being found fault with. He's not demonstrating anything like that. He says, my judge is God, and he judges exactly appropriately. And so I want to have that clear conscience before him. One last uh, quotation I want to give. I've said last a few times, but anyway, seriously. A caring minister of Christ cannot be insensitive to the feelings, needs, and opinions of his people. He should not try to be. No minister can remain faithful to his calling if he lets the congregation or any human beings decide how true his motives are or whether he's working within the Lord's will. Because their knowledge and understanding of the facts are imperfect, their criticisms and compliments are imperfect. Criticisms and compliments are imperfect. In humility and love, God's minister must not allow himself to care about other people's evaluations of his ministry. I think that's not a proud or arrogant thing. That come from, comes from MacArthur's commentary in 1 Corinthians. In other words, what, we are, what we're about is this. Do your best and leave the results and the vindication to God. Do your best, leave the results and the vindication to God. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have entrusted us with a wonderful service, a service of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to honor him. We want to see him honored in our lives and glorified in our even the hearts, the motivation of our hearts. We want to please him in every respect. Please help us as we relate to one another, not to be, uh, well, to be, admonishing and correcting as, as appropriate, but not to be so critical, not to be so judgmental, condemning uh, toward one another. We pray that you would teach us. We want to be your people. We want to live in unity and joy and hope in your grace and your gospel. We pray that you'd help us, not just the preachers, not just the, the leaders, but each one of us. We want to please you and to have that wonderful, amazing statement, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Pray that Christ would come soon. We pray in his name. Amen.